Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. I want to thank you so much for listening to our podcast. And if you'd like to make it even better, please fill out our one-minute listener survey by going to skepticspath.org and clicking on the link at the top of the homepage. If you've benefited from our podcast, please also consider giving us a donation. Our podcast and educational programs are supported entirely by donations, and we're very grateful for your support. On our website at skepticspath.org, we accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. I had a very powerful conversation recently with author and Zen teacher Ben Connolly, whose books have had a powerful influence on my life. It's rare that a Buddhist teacher is able to affect us at a practical level, like how to deal with your anger in the heat of a fight with your partner, and also how to understand the subtlest levels of reality and the nature of our consciousness. Ben manages to do both in his teaching and in his writing. Ben Connolly is a Soto Zen teacher and a Dharma heir in the Katagiri lineage. He also provides secular mindfulness training in a wide variety of contexts, including police training, correctional facilities, and addiction recovery. Ben's books include Mindfulness and Intimacy, Inside Vasubandhu's Yogacara, and Inside the Grass Hut. Ben is based at Minnesota Zen Center, where I spoke with him over a video call. So Ben, thank you so much for joining me on A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment today. Your book, Inside Vasubandhu's Yogacara, has a title that might sound a little esoteric to people, but it had a profound impact on how I live my everyday life, believe it or not. (laughs) So I'm excited to speak to you today about some of the practical ideas that you shared in the book uh, about the nature of mind and how to steer our minds in the most beneficial direction we can. I love talking about this. I'm interested in it because it's been transformative for me and people that I know. So yeah, thank you for having me. I think we'll start with the obvious question. Who was Vasubandhu and what is Yogacara and why did you want to write about it? Yeah, I'll start with Vasubandhu. So Vasubandhu was a 5th century, approximately Indian Buddhist monk. And he started off his life in what would now be considered like early Buddhist tradition, so more closely associated with contemporary Theravada Buddhism. And he became one of the most renowned masters in the world of that tradition. He wrote something called the Abhidharma Kosha, which is still a standard study text for Buddhist psychology in Tibetan and many other East Asian monastic traditions 1,500 years later. And at the time, people are, were all already like, oh my goodness, you have created the most comprehensive summation of this. This is amazing. So he did that, and then he kept practicing, and basically his views changed. And he subsequently wrote a commentary on his own 
book, the Abhidharma Kosha. And that commentary was a critique of his own work that made mm. substantial, like, it was like, wait a minute, that doesn't really make sense. I love this about Vasubandhu. This is a person who wasn't like, oh, I've got it figured out. Can you imagine? Everyone thinks you're totally the greatest at your thing. And then you're like, but I, I think I got it wrong. That's how I want to live. So that's really inspiring to me. But he went on to, you know, the language we use now is he converted to Mahayana Buddhism. I don't know exactly what that means. But his teachings became associated with the vision of universal liberation and in particular with the Yogacara movement within Mahayana. So Yogacara just means yoga practice, which yoga means to join or unite. So bringing things together. And it was a movement within the Mahayana to try and integrate early Buddhist psychology with what you might say are the more mystical, or you could say the non-dual teachings of Mahayana. So Yogacara is about uniting or bringing those together so that they can work together because there was actually a lot of, there still is all kinds of arguments about who's right or wrong and which one's better. And he's willing to make arguments, but generally speaking, the vision is about bringing those so they can work together more effectively. Yogacara was really influential during its time. It was a huge prominent school of Buddhism. At this time, there's almost no like there's not anyone who's like, I'm of the Yogacara school, except for the Hoso school in Japan, which is pretty small. But if you read any kind of East Asian or Tibetan Buddhism, you will be taking in countless Yogacara ideas and teachings because they just embedded themselves in the tradition. So that may be enough for now. One of the things that struck me about the book is the way you talk about karma, because you say something quite profound about this text. You say, except in one small place, the entire text never resorts to supernatural explanations of reality. And when you talk about karma, you have this great quote. You say, karma doesn't make rain. It makes smiles and frowns. It makes hugs and fists. So can you explain what karma means in this text, how we practically use this idea of karma in everyday life? Because I think a lot of us do think that karma means more like, you know, we got the parking spot because of karma or we got cancer because of karma. Yeah. I don't know what exactly I was thinking when I wrote that. I might argue now that karma makes rain. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, karma in Buddhism, one of the revolutionary turns in the early Buddhist and all Buddhist traditions was to shift from an idea that, of karma that says, because you have this karma, you need to do this it radically shifts it. And it says, because you have karma, you are experiencing this now, and you have choice that will create karma. That is a big fundamental twist within Buddhism. So Yogacara wants to really affirm that because it affirms about empowerment, about recognizing mm -hmm. that what we do always matters. We're constantly doing things that affect how the world will be experienced. And if you look at some Mahayana teaching, sometimes it gets a little confusing how karma could work because they're talking about emptiness so much. Not to say that emptiness teachings aren't really helpful, but Yogacara really wants to emphasize the fact that it's like all of our emotional, physical, perceptual, or cognitive acts, which are happening at a rate of like millions per second, are planting seeds or creating the conditions for which we will perceive feel, think, and act in the future, which is why I wanted to emphasize like fists and smiles. But since rain is a perceptual phenomenon, I might argue that rain 
you know, does a raindrop know it's rain? Human beings think it's rain, but I don't know what it is outside of our ideas about it. Yeah, this question's fascinated me over the years because there are differences of point of view in different Buddhist schools. But in one of the Dalai Lama's recent books, he said a similar thing. He said, all of physical reality unfolds through physics. But he said, our psychological reality is what is controlled by karma, like the urges that we have. And then it's a choice <laughs> on how to act on them and maybe how to steer them. Yeah, I would take a more radically Yogacara position from my mm -hmm. own personal view, which is basically that physics and all science occurs only as experienced by human beings. Mm. So there is no such thing as a physics outside of the experience of physics. Schrodinger mm -hmm. put this well, the great Nobel winning physicist, when he said the reason man's, sorry to say, gender specific, that's the quote. The reason man's sentient, percipient, thinking ego is met nowhere within the world picture of science is that it is the whole of that world picture. So you mm. can't have science outside of the frame of the mind. Yogacara is just like talking about, we only experience things the way we do. And so the thing is, people will be like, well, that sounds like it's denying the importance of science. No, it says science is really important because we're doing it. It's something we do as actional, as emotional, as cognitive, and as perceptual. And so mm -hmm. the question becomes, are we doing science because we're motivated by we want to help everyone be free, and we want to do science in a way that is conducive to the liberation of all beings, or not? Because like, you know, making nuclear weapons and a lot of the stuff that we make using science doesn't seem all that helpful to me. Yeah, there's a few great thinkers. David Deutsch comes to mind a little bit too, who emphasized that science is part of reality. Science is made of the same things as the rest of reality. Science isn't something that's separate from what it's observing, which I think resonates with what you're saying. By the way, I think the Dalai Lama is pretty smart. So you could listen to what I'm saying and just be like, well, that's what that guy's saying. But maybe I should listen yeah. to Dalai Lama. There's something else interesting in, in the text and also your commentary is how there's a humility. I was really struck by the humility of saying, basically, we don't know what karma is or where it's stored. And that, again, is also very different from the Tibetan school that I learned, which maybe is still a little bit mysterious, but perhaps more certain on some points. Can you talk about this humility and uh, uncertainty approach to thinking about karma? Aren't humility and uncertainty valuable? We look at the amount of human suffering that is created by certainties and by the arrogance that arises from them. So it's a really important thing. If I just refer to Vasubandhu's teachings on Yogacara, which evolved quite a bit, he gives a model of consciousness where he says that there's an aspect of consciousness, the alaya, where, which is kind of the process or the locus of the processing of conditioning. And you can't actually see that place. It's not like you lift up the hood and you're like, oh, I'll just take out this part and put in that part. There's something happening, but we don't really know. So one, that opens us up to some humility because it's like, I'm arriving in this moment, if I'm being really grumpy or really calm, the amount of conditioning that's produced it is unimaginable, or as the Buddha often says, without discoverable beginning. That helps me to be like, well, I don't really know. Even when we're given the map of how karma works within Yogacara, 
it's framed in a way that its intention is to help us be humble about how we're arriving and perceiving things. But it's also true that if you, it takes a little digging, but you realize that the idea that karma even actually exists is provisional. Mm-hmm. It's just a way of talking about things. In late Yogacara, in the Lankavatara Sutra, we have the amazing line. They line up the whole model of consciousness of Yogacara with like eight types of consciousness, which is really an explanation for how karma creates our experience. And then it says, but karma isn't real. It's the Buddha speaking in the text, although it's just a story. But the Lankavatara Sutra says, but karma isn't real. We just teach it because people are confused. I was just teaching a class on this and someone was really annoyed. (laughs) But the point is, a map isn't the real thing. Mm. But it's helpful to have a map. So we hold both those views. Yogacara presents a way of understanding the world that we hope can be conducive to people being more free from suffering and from healing patterns of harm. But I don't want to get into some things where it's like, I know the answer, because a lot Mm -hmm. of people have different answers, and I don't want to sit around Mm -hmm. and try and dominate them. I don't think Mm -hmm. that's conducive to healing or liberation. Yeah, in the nightly purification practice we do in our tradition, the very end of it, they say, you know, in emptiness, there's no karma created, <laughs> no, no action, no object of karma. So, but it's hard to understand what that means exactly. <laughs> if there aren't actual things, because things only appear to be things, distinct objects, because of the way we think about them. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of flux happening. And because of the tendencies of our minds, we pick them out and say, oh, this is a moment which is separate from other moments. That's arbitrary. Just because of the way our consciousness seems to experience things in moments, we're like, oh, there must be moments. That's like if you were a human being and not believing that dogs could hear things you can't hear. We're like, oh, there are moments and there's space which is aligned in these ways with up and down and forward and back and distances within it. And, and me sitting in the middle of all of it. Wow, I must be important to necessary Mm. to defend anyway so we have all these conceptions and all of them are just ideas so none of those things are ultimately true and nothing that Mm. appears to be a thing which is distinct from other things is absolutely real but it's empty so the thing is why would karma be something else it's just a bunch of ideas people made up yeah i don't know know how it would somehow transcendently go beyond that thing the problem is when i say that it's very hard to hold a non-dual position. So you go, oh shoot, everything's empty. It doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. No, the only reason that all those things can appear to be the way they are and all my suffering can occur as a result of them is because they're empty. So there's a place for me to impute all this stuff. There has to be emptiness for there Mm -hmm. to be anything to happen. The only way anything can occur is because it's Mm -hmm. empty. That's the basic teaching Mm -hmm. of the doctrine. I really like the way you put that because you say, you know, karma doesn't exist in the same way like a meter or a second doesn't exist. It's not that they aren't useful and practical. And, and if you stop believing in a second that you have all the time in the world. <laughs> today, Right. Right. That's a really helpful the way you put it, actually, just in the world of concepts. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's just the way that it exists. It's, you know, provisional, labeled, dependent. Why don't we go a little more into emptiness? Because you talk about how our division of things into self and other, this process of self-centering is a big source of our mental troubles, you know, where suffering comes from in Buddhism. But in, the, in this very first verse, it talks about how neither the self 
nor the other is consciousness. Just we're talking about these other karma and other concepts that they're merely conceptions occurring within the process of consciousness. So can you unpack that a little bit? What does it mean that self and other are both processes of consciousness? Yeah. In the 30 verses, it begins, everything conceived as self or other occurs in the process of consciousness or the transformation of consciousness. In Sanskrit, the first two words are atma dharma. So that which appears to be some kind of self and that which appears to be phenomena, all that is just part of the process of consciousness. All these words are really tricky and they're not Mm. used consistently even within the tradition. So the word vijnana, which we translate as consciousness, is sometimes translated or used in different ways. So for people who find this confusing, welcome to the club. It just is, it's a confusing situation. Plus, we're trying to describe aspects of what it is to be alive that are really, when you look under the hood, it's very weird. It's like we teach people to walk really slowly in Zen, to do a really slow walking meditation. And so you're taking like five seconds to take one step and people will fall over. Because once you look at something closely, it's hard to do it, even though it's automatic. And that's why we're doing this, because being automatic is not working out for our planet. We have huge Mm -hmm. amounts of environmental destruction and oppressive systems that we need to pause and look at, and it will be painful and uncomfortable. So here, Vasubandhu wants to look at, like, what are these things? So it's like right now, it seems like I'm here experiencing something. That's a self. And then there's a bunch of other stuff. There's faces on the screen. There's trees outside. And so... By saying transformation of consciousness, it probably the easiest way to think about this is the totality of experience. Mm. So like consciousness sounds like one thing, but if we think of it as just like experience, so there seems to be the experience of a self right now. And there seems mm. to be the experience of some books on a shelf. And so we're calling all of that consciousness. So I don't know if that gets us any closer to understanding, but I'm, mm. I'm trying. There's a, me- a couple of metaphors that come up in the book. You talk about the metaphor of the water and the waves and the movie and the screen as ways of understanding the relationship of our mind to reality. The first time I heard that was Robert Thurman. He said, whenever you're watching a movie, like when you go to a movie theater, you're actually looking at a white screen. <laughs> you know, the whole time you're looking at a white screen, but you forget and you get caught up in that dream. Can you talk about that metaphor a little bit? Yeah, I think I used it as... Uh from a Shunryu Suzuki, who is my teacher's uh-huh. teacher, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. I love movies. It's awesome. You know, you go, to the, it's amazing that people can do this. Wow. The imagination and the collaboration, it's incredible. And so you can go and it can be good. You can go to a movie and I can give myself to it and really feel and really connect with people because I'm like feeling, oh, that's what this person's suffering and joy looks like. That helps mm-hmm. me to understand and connect with people. It's necessary, but it is useful to be like, oh yeah, it's just a screen so that I don't go to a movie that scares me and not sleep for three months. So the thing is, where do we wanna be not caught by our belief in the story that's constructed by our patterning so that we can be a little more free? Because optimally, what I want to be able to do from a Yogacara perspective, what liberation really looks like, it's defined by Vasubandhu in the Mahayana Samgraha. He says, this is abandoning affliction while not abandoning samsara. Mm -hmm. 
So the point is we want to stay and watch the movie. We want to be there in this world where we're sharing perceptions and emotions and stuff. And by now, like the, the movie is like our life. It's the whole thing, the whole shebang, billions of people's experience of what's projected on the screen of consciousness. It's a big deal. This is a tradition that says, do not leave. We are choosing to stay here with everyone. But because we can learn that it's like it's on a white screen, we can be non-reactive within it. So it's possible for me to show up fully even when there's a lot of intensity and difficult emotions for people and be like, I'm really here. I'm following the story. I care. I'm engaged. But I also know that this is all just based on how I'm perceiving it and you're perceiving it. And so I don't have to become so invested in my own emotional drives and need to protect myself. Mm. And this isn't detachment or not caring. It's actually a way to be more engaged because you don't get caught up with all the delusions of thinking things are quite as real as they seem. Yeah, I would say my sense of this at this time is very much definitely not like detachment or not caring. Mm -hmm. It's the ability really. And now we're really focusing on this kind of emptiness side. So mm -hmm. the part of Yogacara that talks about emotional intelligence might be where this is leading us. But yeah, yeah. the idea is. We want to be able to totally be there where what was presented is the phenomena of human and, and animal suffering. It's like, I'm not running away. I'm reading about this horrible environmental impacts of this pipeline in my state, and I'm not putting it down because I can't deal. I'm able to totally read it. See, I care about these people. I care about these plants. I care about these animals. I care about the people who think we shouldn't care about it. I care about all of them, and I'm not overwhelmed by own, my own reactivities. Mm. So the thing is, our emotional reactivities, this is going back to the karma side. If we do the emotional healing that Yogacara invites us into, that helps us slow down enough and meet that mm. and see that screen. When we're overwhelmed by emotions, we can't get to it usually. Mm. This actually gets to the part of the book that I think has impacted me most, which is you talk about a way, and this gets a little technical, and yet it's so practical because you talk about a way of slowing down your mind and observing these five processes of how things come into your mind and then eventually you know you want to react to them as your life unfolds you talk about a way to to slow that down and pay attention and it's a little different than the one i learned in our school of buddhism we more look at the five aggregates which was a way of looking at both your body and your mind and trying to see oh i can't find myself in any of them but I like the way that, that you presented and that Vasubandhu presented here that's purely mental. And I found it much more powerful and practical because it's, it's really focusing on the psychological. Would you mind talking about that technique a little bit? Yeah. Now, first I want to say there's a very confusing thing about the use of the term mind and consciousness in Yogacara. Because since we're trained in a mind-body split culture, it's very hard to understand how, when I say mind, I don't mean something other than your body. And so I want to stay with this for a minute because it's actually kind of basis of the whole other five. It's the first one. So when we say things are mind only or consciousness only in this tradition, we say we don't know anything outside of our knowing of it. 
So that is to say, like, my body, I only know my body as my body. The sensations in it. So I'm, like, touching my body right now with my hands. Oh, I can feel this body. So the thing is, this tradition is trying to get us closer to the body. Closer to the body, not farther away. Because if you believe in a mind-body split, you think, I'm going to look at my body. You objectify the body, so the body is an absolute physical object separate from your experience of it. But this tradition is saying, what about just experiencing the body and fully acknowledging its wholeness and completeness moment to moment? And they call that sense contact. Some of this gets super technical. I probably don't even understand half of it. The other part I can't explain right now. But anyway, we'll call it sense contact, which is just that moment where it's like you're breathing and you feel the skin of your belly. There's a sensation there, which if we think about it, we'll be like, oh, that's my belly pressing against my shirt. Those are a bunch of ideas. There's just a vivid sensation there. Sense contact is to just feel that and possibly see it without the overlay of that's a shirt and that's a body. Sense contact is like that raw, vivid moment of experience and what we call this form. So these are all new, slightly different names for things that some of you might understand as the five aggregates. And there's complex reasons for why they want to use slightly different names that I want to get into. But anyway, slow down and just like, you know, in Zen, it's like, how much time am I going to listen to Zen people talk about hearing birds? Well, the reason is we sit in the Zendo and not much happening. So we notice birds. It's cool. Sometimes it's like we're saying, oh, I heard a bird because we want to talk to each other. But there can be that moment where it's like, I'm not hearing a bird. There's just a sense experience. So to slow down and, and do that requires... Usually, in my experience, talking to other people, actively bringing our attention into the senses, grounding awareness in the senses, and that what happens is the sensations are there. And because we're doing that, there's a, there's an amazing moment where our mind isn't dominating everything. And we start to get closer and more intimately near to our own embodied experience, which we call mind only, not because it's separate from mind, but because it's inseparable from everything. In any moment, you can notice your attention is doing stuff. When I'm teaching meditation, people always say, because I teach it like a lot of halfway houses and places where people are really, it's tough. And they'll be like, I just can't concentrate. I can't pay attention. Everyone is always paying attention to something. You can just notice like oh my attention is moving around that's where it is it's listening to that bird it heard the bird and then it was like oh my back hurts and then it became completely absorbed in some thinking so thinking in this rubric uh so that just refers to the fact that your mind is constantly labeling everything pause for a second and be like what are all the things that my mind has labeled in this moment any color that was labeled probably. Your mind is differentiated up and down. It's differentiated your position in the room. It's differentiated the different sensations in your body, like you know your butt isn't your head, hopefully. Um, so millions of perceptual dharmas are occurring in every second. I'm not even gonna claim you can see that, but in, maybe someone can. But you can have a little sense of it 
where you'll sense it most is in the moments of its absence. So in that moment where, for example, in Zen practice, we face the wall for meditation. And people will have experiences where they don't know it's a wall. Mm. They're just looking at a wall. And then they forget that it's a wall. When that happens, there's been a brief cessation in the relentlessness of your perceptual imputations. And there's just sense contact. And that changes how you experience the world. I forgot sensation. So sense contact, attention, sensation, perception. This one also, I usually don't teach. Very hard to detect. This is the famous subtle sense that is occurring usually thousands of times per second that things are positive, negative, or neutral. So you're either like, oh, I like that, I don't like that, or I don't care about it. Volition. This is a really good one. Just noticing the impulse to act. This is a really great meditation practice. You got to slow down a little bit because there's a lot of them. It, it's an action to be like, no, I'm going to notice my breath. I'm going to notice my breath with some intensity. In order to start a thought, there has to be a little volition in there. So it's pretty subtle. But we can slow down and start to just have a sense of all these processes occurring. And it just breaks up. It seems like such a fixed, I have to do this. I'm a dumb person. I'm smarter than everybody, whatever your deal is. And it makes a little room for air to come in. I've tried to practice in the way you describe it, and I found it so useful. Almost like if you fish, but you don't want to kill the fish, you have this catch and release um, where you let the fish back. And I almost think of that. It's that last part, I think, that was so powerful of trapping volition and stopping there acknowledging that it's there, your wish to act or say something or get angry or whatever, and then just letting it go, right? That's what's been really, really useful from, from your book for me. <laughs> nice. I love that. Thank you. Something else you talk about is radical acceptance. I first heard this term from Tara Brock and really benefited from her presentation of this idea of just accepting everything about what you are, everything that comes into your mind and how important that is to inner development. Now, my question for you, I actually, I think my Zen friends, and you know, I'm Tibetan Buddhist, me and my Zen friends, I think sometimes tease each other because my Zen friends would say, oh, I have no goal. And I say, well, I want to attain enlightenment. <laughs> and, and, and so I want to ask you how you balance this acceptance of who we are with wanting to improve ourselves and wanting to become more present and compassionate and kind. I think it's a very tricky edge that I, I certainly don't understand how to tread. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. I do love Tara Brock. Uh, great admiration for her. And actually, I don't really remember any details of her teaching on this. So uh, what I don't want to do is have anything I say seem like Sorry. a critique of uh, Tara Brock's take on this. You know, I came to spiritual practice through a spiritual community of recovery from addiction where there's a huge emphasis on acceptance, where people will often they'll say uh, acceptance is the solution to all my problems today. So that's really powerful for me and many people. However, I have no recollection of writing about this in the book, and I tend to teach in a totally different way. So, sorry. Totally not into teaching acceptance at all anymore. <laughs> so this is why. Here's what I want to teach. Non-reactivity. Mm. What I want to help people is have the ability to not feel anguish and despair and other painful emotions that are unpleasant to experience and sometimes cause us to do things that are harmful. 
and also just create the conditions for us to experience similar emotions in the future. But the reason I don't want to use the language of acceptance is it, it sounds too cognitive. That is to say, I do not accept the conditions of policing in the city, Minneapolis, where I live. And I don't want anyone to do it. They are really harmful. People have been murdered by the police in my neighborhood, and it is awful. And other people have been brutalized by them. I don't dislike police. I also work with them and do trainings with police. I have many police officers I know and love. But the situation is bad. And I don't want people to accept it. I don't want people to accept climate change. I don't want people to accept patriarchy. I don't want people to accept the terrible dynamics in their families that are harming everyone. I want them to be able to meet them wholly as they are with compassion and non-reactivity. And I'm well aware that we will all fail because it's hard. Samsara is big. So what I want people to do is wake up to the fact, and what I want to do is wake up to the fact in every moment, no matter what, I am participating in the conditions that create suffering or well-being. And realize that if I know that, some of the most powerful things I can do is pause and know the body really turn my attention to my body as it is, know my emotional state and care about it. And then from that grounding, really turn and listen to how other people and other beings are doing so that my action can be informed from this position of radical compassion. That's wonderful you're willing to bring up these really difficult topics. I think something you often hear from activists is that the some of these negative emotions are really important. The anger is motivating, but you're right at the center of it there in Minneapolis. Can you talk about that? Is anger motivating? Do we need some of these disturbing emotions? Or can we have the force of being an activist for change with a more peaceful mental base? I'm just me, and yeah, I'm yeah. talking to people who are interested in my view about what can be helpful. I am well aware there's there's a lot of people with really differing views, and I, I respect and bow to mm -hmm. them. And in particular, being white and male, the conditions mm -hmm. of a lot of oppressive systems that impact people do not uh, impact me in anywhere nearly extreme a manner. And so... You know, I, with all humility, I'm like, I'm not going to be like, you shouldn't be angry. If you just get rid of your anger, you'll be great. I'm not there at all. And I, I'm an activist and I hang out with a lot of people who are really pissed. <laughs> and I get why. I get why. But I hang out with them and I care about them. And I try and be attentive to both what they're saying, what they're encouraging me to do, and their emotional states. And ultimately... I will say it is my belief that the vast majority of Buddhist teachings, and I'm functioning as a Buddhist teacher here, mm -hmm. tell us that emotions like anger and rage are painful. And my experience with them, and I've experienced a lot of them in my life, really extreme rage and many other emotional states, they're painful. And what I have not seen is that people who don't experience them can't be deeply engaged in liberative work and really doing stuff in a direct and forceful way to promote liberation. I don't use nonviolence as a tactic, and some people do, and I respect that. They're like, nonviolence is just an effective methodology. Nonviolence is at the core of my worldview. 
I'm trying to embody that as best I can and, and trust us all somehow to uh, move in the right direction. And at the end of your book, you share this nice story of being in an argument with your partner and then all of a sudden having the practice work, <laughs> you know, feeling everything falling away, you know, the sense of the person being attacked and, and so on. And you say, you, you describe it in this really humble way that I love. And I'll read it, actually. You said, this isn't enlightenment. It's just a simple moment in the life of somebody dedicated to Buddhist practice. And I really like that because every once in a while, I felt the same thing, too, even in the same context in an argument in a relationship. They're rare. They're very rare. But I, I really recognized that when I read your book. I had the same feeling once I was in an argument. And, I said, and all of a sudden, I was almost laughing. There's nobody, there's no me to, to be angry at. and There's no me to be angry. Would you mind sharing this moment if you're willing to? Because I think it's a really encouraging message of how practice bears fruit in ordinary life. And you don't need to be at some nth stage bodhisattva Buddha for practice to bear fruit. Yeah, I think I remember. I wrote this a long time ago. I think I even remember the incident. I was really not good at intimate relationships, particularly ones that were romantic or sexual. And I hope I'm, I hope I'm doing better. Yeah, so it was just like this deal where we just had these horrible fights. I mean, I would just be obsessing and just pacing around and rageful for days at a time. It was just terrible. And the, the other person was not having a great time either. It was one of those things where it's like things have been okay, and then you say a couple things, and suddenly it's just like you turned on the jets of all this conditioned conflict. I just looked at at my partner and was just, I just realized, well, that's you're obviously in a lot of pain right now. You're so angry. I know what anger feels like. It's really unpleasant to experience. And me too. I was just like, my body is like, ah, just cranking. And then the emotional aspect of my experience is just this, like, why don't you? My mind is going so. I was able, because of my practice, to see those constituent elements that we had talked about earlier just a little bit. And because there was that space, then it was also like, oh, and we're in this room, and there's trees outside, and there's light. There's probably like five billion other people, and people have been doing this for thousands of years. I even watch animals. They fight all the time. Seriously. I just sit in parks and watch animals. What are you guys doing? Yeah. And I just felt it, that it wasn't mine. That not that what I was doing wasn't important, that I wasn't responsible for my actions, but just that the whole of what was happening was in such a vast field. That's what samsara means. And that moment of seeing all that connection, you know, it wasn't like we're not suffering or people aren't suffering. It was actually just like, yeah, this sucks, but I'm here. So there's like a little moment of seeing the screen. And uh, yeah, I actually... I don't remember exactly what happened, but it definitely lightened up the intensity of it. It wasn't like suddenly my partner was like, you're great. I love you so much. We got it all figured out. Liberation is it's a, it's a process. It's a mutual relational process. That's the heart mm. of Mahayana Buddhist thought. Mm. That's very beautiful. I really appreciate how we've been talking about this fairly technical and for most people, obscure texts, but the conversation is so practical and up-to-date and, and current. One thing you said about this text is that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh 
and his students used to recite it every day, these, these 30 verses. What do you get out of reciting a text like this? You know, for people who don't do any kind of prayer, for people who don't realize it, prayers are a big part of some Buddhist traditions, you know, just like they are in, in Christianity. Can you talk about the value of a text like this as a prayer and how it somehow bore fruit in this practical advice and how to deal with racism and anger and addiction and so on? Yeah, well, this is just a topic I just love. Mm-hmm. So, um, one, you know, this text is, it's like kind of the idea is it's a summation of huge amounts of Buddhist thought. So you can you can be like, oh, what should I do? And you can be like, oh, that's right. I'm just conditioned. Or you can be like, what should I do? Be like, oh, that's right. I should notice how I feel. That's in verse 16. You know, so that sort of thing. Prayer is a, a nice word for it. The use of text as a way of connecting to culture, to connecting to a sense that you're not just doing it all on your own, it's really big. You know, I used to pray every day to God because people told me that's how I could get over addiction. I never believed in God, but I just did it every day. My life improved. I think C.S. Lewis once wrote, prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes me. And I, I don't know anything about God, so I just say prayer changes me. Um, but some Buddhist centers all over the world, not just in the United States or the West, you know, people chant texts that they don't understand at all. They're in languages they don't know. And it's like they're incantations to make, like, I'm connected to this tradition where I have some trust. And we need to feel trust and support as human beings. Uh, We can't start to see that screen when we're so self-protected. So feeling trust and care is just it's fundamental. For some people, these chants can really open up a door to sensing that. And, you know, in terms of how they really can open us up, I would say Mahayana Buddhism is fundamentally about their part of it. The faith of the tradition is a trust in reality. So I say it's a non-cognitive faith. So... Mm. Ultimately, what we want to be able to do is be like, reality is like this, and I don't have to have all this reactivity to defend myself against it or manipulate it or dominate it or control it. And the the tradition promises that's possible, and I see people growing into that. It is actually, as we begin to trust reality and don't feel like I have to dominate it, control it, that we become liberated into our most powerful agency for transforming things. I believe, I could be wrong, that I'm much more effective as an activist and as a family member because what I'm doing is less motivated by needing to protect myself, dominate, and control things. I've been following indigenous women uh, leading a protest movement for a pipeline up here in Minnesota. I've been up at their camps many times, uh, you know, prayer vigils, protests, people are being arrested and all that stuff. And I don't have any illusion that I'm going to stop climate change. I actually, I'm going to get in trouble if anyone then will listen to this. I never believed we'd stop the pipeline, but I believed it was important to make a choice about where to invest my energy mm-hmm. and supporting indigenous women who wanted to lead a movement of this kind that would elevate this concern seemed like a great way to use my energy. The fact that I haven't had to be like, ah, oh, crap, they built the pipeline. It helps me because then I'm just like, what's next? I'm going to another meeting with the same group in three hours. And hopefully I can show up with some good heart. Now, having said that, yeah, I get disappointed when we have failures. And I don't want to suggest that people should feel bad if they're 
uh, upset about things. Of course. But it is possible to come to this more from this position of trusting reality and recognizing whatever arises. We always have an opportunity to make an offering that can be liberative. It's so powerful and so subtle because I think what you're saying is that by accepting that you may not be successful or that you weren't successful, that complete acceptance actually gives you more energy for the next cause <laughs> that you're going on. To fight. Correct. Yeah. And that's my experience. Might not be true yeah. for other people, but it is my experience. Yeah. It's very nice. because You see a lot of people, including I think myself, get frustrated when we don't win. When our side doesn't win, when our cause doesn't win. Well, I do too. Just, I don't yeah. want to sound too lofty over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we don't give up. That's a thing. You can be frustrated, but don't give up. I hope we don't. <laughs> and I hope these movements cannot be about dominating or winning. Cesar mm. Chavez said, there's no such thing as defeat in nonviolence. Dr. King said, the unusual thing about nonviolence is that nobody is defeated. Bell Hooks is constantly talking about non-domination. What is real liberation? It's giving our energy to the possibility of more freedom and more wellness. Mm, very nice. In the next episode, we're going to have a meditation that you lead. I don't know if you want to talk at all about what that meditation is for people as a preview, or it can just be a surprise as they listen in <laughs> to the next episode. Well, I'll give a preview and, and hope you can still be surprised. I think what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to do a, a meditation that's basically integrating the two sides, basic sides of Yogacara meditation methodology. Vipassana in this body of teachings is looking at specific aspects of experience in specific ways. So you might call this mindfulness. And then shamatha, which me means here objectless meditation. So we'll start by settling in some particular phenomena and then try and open up into the fact that everything already is objectless. Because the thing is, you don't have to wait to be inseparable from the rest of the universe because you already are. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was really lovely to get a chance to talk to you. And I'm looking forward to the meditation. Thank you. Thank you all for listening and, and thank you for hosting. Thanks for joining us for our conversation with author and teacher Ben Connolly. Our next episode features a guided meditation by Ben. Ben's new book, Mindfulness and Intimacy, is available online and in bookstores, as is the book we talked about on this episode, Inside Vasubandhu's Yoga Chara. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported entirely by donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where we can be found under the name Skeptics Path. And if you have a moment, we're currently conducting a listener survey. It takes less than a minute to fill out, and you can find a link to it at the top of our website at skepticspath.org. Thanks to Tara Anderson for producing and editing this episode. 
Christian Parry and Chris Bolton for audio mastering, and Jason Waterman for marketing and digital production. We wish you a wonderful day. Thank you.